Open the Word of God, please, to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, are what the Lord has brought us to this morning. I can't even read them to you. However, without offering up a prayer of thanksgiving for the Lord's bringing us His Word. I want to thank the Lord briefly for the great movements of history, the overthrow of the Roman Empire that left the Greek nation, the defenders of Corne Greek, and the Byzantine traditional text of the Bible. I'm thankful for the rising of the Muslim hordes that overthrew Constantinople in 1453, and in the overthrow of that city where all the Greek manuscripts were, they flooded Europe. I'm thankful for the invention of the printing press at the same time as those Greek manuscripts were unloaded on Europe so that we had a printed Bible with William Tyndale's efforts, who are the translators, the third thing we want to be thankful for, and John Wycliffe that was before him and others, and the translators of our King James Bible that in great humility and seven years of dedicated effort gave us a matchless piece of English literature and the words of God all at once combined together. And fourth, for the defenders of the King James Bible since then that we rely upon and have done great works and dedicated their lives to proving textual critics wrong for the last couple hundred years particularly. Let us thank the Lord before we even read the first word of John chapter 8, which is Jesus because we can trust that it's there for God's operation of providentially preserving His Word through these four categories of things and many others. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the living Word of God, we thank Thee for the written Word of God and its transmission to us. And we thank Thee for the great movements of history in which You have changed nations raised nations, thrown nations down, overturned empires, and kept your people safe from one nation and empire to the next. We thank thee for the transmission of the manuscripts out of Antioch of Syria and the Byzantine traditional text of the Word of God, the majority text that was preserved by that nation of Greece and then preserved in the city of Constantinople and then flooded Europe when that city was overthrown and its purpose in the world had ended. We thank Thee, Heavenly Father, the Lord and Governor of nations. We believe that history is His story. That is, Lord, Your story of what You have done in the affairs of men. And we bless and praise Your holy name for it. We are very indebted to Your gracious providence in the affairs of nations for us to have the Word of God. We thank you for using the pagan, illiterate hordes to accomplish your great literate work of a King James Bible for us. Heavenly Father, we then thank thee for the witty inventions that you've promised to give according to Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 12, and that you have given them many, so many of them to the European nations where those manuscripts then went from Constantinople. We thank Thee for the printing press that was invented so that we could have the printed pages of the Bible and Bibles could be multiplied with ease and multiplied with accuracy, not relying upon a scribe for each particular copy. We thank Thee for these things. Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for Thy glorious timing of the matters. Then we thank Thee, Heavenly Father, for men like William Tyndale, who was burned at the stake for loving Your Word. And we Americans are afraid to pray in public over a meal. Save us and forgive us for being so cowardly and effeminate in comparison to him and to others. We thank thee for John Wycliffe, who knew far less than William Tyndale. And Heavenly Father, what these men did not understand, we ask you to forgive them, realizing their times and their backgrounds. But Lord, the courage they had and the love they had for your word and the hatred they had for the Church of Rome and its institutionalized ignorance of the people, we thank Thee and bless and praise Your holy name. We thank Thee that William Tyndale provided 90 plus percent of the terminology, the words of our King James Bibles. Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for the translators chosen 
by King James I of England, the sixth of Scotland, in his ambitious plan in 1604 to have a translation of the Bible in English that would replace the competing versions. We thank thee for those men and their faithfulness over seven years, their openness, their humility, and their dedication of that work, and their identification of the man of sin of the Church of Rome, and how that the word of God in the hands of King James I should deal a death blow to him in England, and lo, we have seen that happen. We thank Thee. Heavenly Father, I thank Thee for William Otis Fuller, and I thank Thee for Dean Burgeon, and I thank Thee for Dr. Edward F. Hills. And Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for Floyd Nolan Jones. We thank Thee for Robert Ray. We thank Thee for men that have hazarded their reputations in defending the King James Bible for us, who have put laborious hours together of researching the manuscript evidence. I thank thee for Robert Barnett of Michigan for putting together pamphlets 40 years ago, Lord, 40 years ago that I needed to read that showed me things that are not known in other places. I thank thee for the truth of your word. I thank thee for the inspiration of it, my providential preservation of it, the purification of it. I thank thee for Baruch. I thank thee for Jeremiah. I thank thee for men ancient and men modern that have given us the word of God, who shed their blood for it, who lost their assets, were taken away from their families, ran and hunted like dogs, but love thy words so that we could have them and a plowboy of England would know more than the bishops of Rome. Now bless us. We trust thy word. Be a shield to us. As we saw in Psalm 5, And as we saw in Proverbs chapter 30, in Jesus' name, I dedicate this preaching to thee. Amen. Amen. Brother Daniel, thank you for Psalm 5. Brother Aaron, thank you for your prayer. You have my job description in front of you. Preach the word. You've been taught the internal rules of Bible interpretation so that you don't have to rely on my seminary degree in hermeneutics because you've been taught that the Bible has its own internal rules. I've given you every valuable Bible research tool that you need to be able to search out the Word of God and to check me out. We've had men's meetings for an entire year in which we went through the rules of hermeneutics for this very purpose. Now let me read to you John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. We may not get into them this service, but I want to read them to you anyway because they're precious. And the sound of their English pronunciation on your ears should be precious. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning he came again into the temple. And all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, He lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst." When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Amen Amen and amen.
This passage of Scripture is called the Pericope Adulterae. Those are Jerome of the 4th century's Latin words for the passage of the adulteress. And they have been a source of controversy for 1,700 years. And I've just read them to you. Do you love the words? Are you familiar with the words? Have you trusted the words? Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. You familiar with those words? Have you heard them before? Have you read them before? Do you believe them? Do you trust them? Do you love the words? But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. Do you love? He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Don't we love those words? Is there any internal witness to you that they're the words of God? Do you love the words being convicted by their own conscience went out one by one? Do you love woman? Where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? Do you love? Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. If we cannot trust John 7, 53, which is also removed in their Bibles in the first 11 verses of John chapter 8, then what can we trust? If we doubt John 8, 1 through 11, what do we have? We have a doubtful Bible. If we have a doubtful Bible, how can we be sure of it at any point? If we can't be sure of it at any point, then why are we even here today? Man shall live by every word of God, according to Luke 4, 4 in a King James Bible. And he protects such believers in his words, as we learned from Proverbs chapter 30 and verses 5 and 6 earlier this morning. We have a more sure word of prophecy that we ought to take heed to, as Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 1. What is the controversy? What is this pericope, adulterate controversy? What is this controversy about the passage concerning the adulteress? Most scholars and textual critics deny John 7:53 through 8:11 is inspired scripture of the Bible. The author of the verses or the writer of the verses, depending on the scholar or critic, was the apostle John or someone else. The event of these verses, depending on the scholar or critic, either happened or it did not happen. Therefore, most modern English versions identify the verses as questionable or spurious. This is in stark contrast to the English hexapla, in which all six translations included it. A book was put together a long time ago. Hexapla means six side-by-side versions of a book, in this case the Bible, in which we've got Wycliffe of 1380, Tyndale of 1534, Cranmer of 1539, Geneva of 1557, the Reims Catholic version of 1582, and the authorized version of 1611, side by side, in a column form. And uh, all six of them have John 8, 1 through 11. So in English, there hasn't been a controversy about it until around 1870. This is in stark contrast, the fact that it's not in the modern English Bibles when it was considered part of Scripture in those versions I just mentioned to you. It's all there. You can check it out. We live in a wonderful time in which you can check out more than anyone else has ever been able to check out. You can check it out quickly. As long as you know keyword searches through a Google search box, you can find these things and find much more than the brief summary I'm going to give you, no matter how long it takes. The main reason that the controversy exists is because their two favorite Greek manuscripts, Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, do not have it. Their two favorite manuscripts are two big fancy volumes. One was in a convent at Mount Sinai, and one was in the Pope's library. Vaticanus, Vatican, Sinaiticus at Mount Sinai. Their two big fancy volumes are believed by them and by us to have been the result of Constantine in the 4th century, that's the 300s, asking for 50 official Bibles to be made for the empire. Eusebius tells us about them. He was given charge to do it, and they took the New Testament from Origen's speculations of the 2nd century. 
and they put these Bibles together. The churches that we would be associated with had no use for those Bibles. They were in pulpits anyway of churches approved by the Roman Empire, which our churches wouldn't have been approved of anyway. We didn't care what Constantine believed any more than we care what President Trump believes. I don't care what President Trump believes. I don't care if he's a Presbyterian or a Baptist. I don't care if he reads the King James Bible or the New American Standard Bible. I don't think very highly of his Christianity or his testimony. I don't care that sometimes he lets men pray over him. I do care that we still have a nation that shows some lip service toward these things, but I don't measure our religion by him. We still measure our religion by the Lord Jesus Christ. We are members of the sect of the Nazarenes led by Jesus of Nazareth and his followers, including the Apostle Paul, and we follow the Word of God in the King James Bible. And I say all that because when you read history and you're told that Constantine was a great emperor that furthered Christianity, he only furthered Christianity of the Roman Catholic variety. Right. He didn't further Christianity of our variety. The man was so messed up. But I'm going to leave that for your reading so that I don't say anything disrespectful to a leader of an empire in the pulpit at this time. No one read Vaticanus until Tischendorf, a textual critic, read it in 1843. Do you know that you can look up every single thing that I'm telling? Just type in Vaticanus. You can read about Vaticanus. There's online Vaticanus. You can have online Vaticanus read to you. You can do anything you want with Vaticanus. It's still in the Pope's library, but they have finally allowed people to copy it so you can get it on the Internet. And Sinaiticus, you can find that as well. No one read Sinaiticus until Tischendorf, same man, found it in 1859. We're only talking about 150 years ago. Dean Burgeon, a great minister of the Church of England, baby-sprinkling heretic that he was, I just asked the Lord to forgive him for those things that he didn't know better because what he did know, he was a champion for us. He went up against Westcott and Hort to the loss of reputation in the Church of England so that he wasn't honored for the 12-cylinder engine that God gave him up here. Dean Burgeon. The revision revised. Try it on sometime. Because the Church of England came out with a revision of the Bible... The first English revision of the Bible was 1881. He immediately wrote a destructive book against it called The Revision Revised. And how Westcott and Hort had snuck their own New Testament in the Greek into that committee. And it was a representation of what they thought, not what good textual critics would have put together. It's a long story. We just thank the Lord for Dean Burgeon. He saw those two manuscripts, Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, that Westcott and Hort were worshiping at as false witnesses of a fabricated text, and he used a Bible verse. to. Def- this, is, this is a little out of context, but I want you to appreciate the man because he was going against the revision committee of the Church of England, and he was in the Church of England. Because of his stand in the Word of God, he wasn't part of the revision committee. Do you think they'd put Peter Ruckman on a revision committee at Bob Jones University? No. Does Peter Ruckman have more than a hundred problems? Yes, more than a thousand. But he does love the King James Bible. Matthew 26, 60. They're trying to condemn Jesus Christ. They're bringing false witness after false witness, but found none. Yea, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. At the last came two false witnesses. For those of you that are listening to me, you've got to love the man. Now, this is a man going against the revision committee of the Church of England, and he says, Matthew 26, 60, describes what they're doing. They have at last found two false witnesses that they can use, Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. Oh, William Screven, you just got a competitor. Another reason is because they and or some of the church fathers did not understand it. Why is there a controversy? Early church fathers that were chauvinistic monsters did not understand it. They could not allow an 11-verse section in the Bible where it appeared that Jesus was instituting a laxer approach toward women that committed adultery. I'm going to read you some quotes, maybe. 
hopefully. Do you understand that? In a chauvinistic time, when they wanted it, men to be able to commit adultery, but not women to be able to commit adultery, or at least to think in those directions, there were church fathers that did not like that passage and took that passage out, and they had witnesses that they had taken that passage out because it gave too much freedom to women to commit adultery, which it doesn't give any freedom at all. Did he say, go and sin no more? Right. Another reason is, is because the Greek lectionaries, the lectionary is that tells you what's supposed to be read every Sunday. And very quickly, the Western Church, the Western Catholic Church is Rome and Latin. The Eastern Catholic Church is Constantinople and Greek. And the difference still exists. And if you really got them in a quiet room where nobody was going to report them, they'd tell you they still hate each other. Though we know they both have so many errors in them, but one was a Latin church of the Latin language, and thus the Latin Vulgate of the 4th century written by Jerome, and the other was Greek. You know, if there's anybody that should be guardians of the Greek language, it should be Americans? No, Greeks. Do Greeks know what baptizo means? Yes. The Greek word baptizo. <laughs> yes, they dip their babies. Right. They dip their babies underwater because they know what baptizo means. The lectionaries, what is John chapter 7 about? Let me see if you can get a guess. I'm going to read one verse out of it. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. What Jewish holiday brought about the gift of the Holy Spirit? Pentecost. So, on the day of Pentecost... The lectionaries of the church, that church, the church, read John chapter 7, verse 37, through the end of the chapter. But they did not want adultery brought into the scene, so they jumped to verse 12, because they didn't want to end with, and every man went unto his own house. They didn't want to end with verse 52. For out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. They didn't want to end there, so they ended with 8, 12, and cut out 12 verses in their lectionaries. Whenever, they, whenever a scribe would transcribe or make a copy of the Bible, and he was of the persuasion of the lectionary, they would make notes at the beginning of 753 and at the end of 811, that this is that section that we don't read, so that when somebody was in the pulpit on the day of Pentecost, and they're reading John 7 and verse 39, they wouldn't go into the whole long sordid case of the adulteress on the day of Pentecost. Are you with me? So they had these marks. So along come textual critics of the American variety, the ones that have watched MTV, Beavis and Butthead, before MTV. Who ever got to see Beavis and Butthead? Oh, there's only about three of us in here, and I wasn't watching it for anything but entertainment as to where America was headed. You know, that, that kind of a generation goes back and finds those marks before John 7.53 and after 8.11. Oh, these don't belong in the Bible. Or these are questionable. Or there's doubtful authenticity about these verses. Dean Burgeon took that and proved it from the lectionaries of the churches that that is where they got the idea that this passage doesn't belong in the Bible. But it was always in the Bible, and it was read on St. Pelagia's Day, which was to honor women. Oh, there's champions out there, brethren. There's champions out there that have gone to bat for us, and it cost him his reputation. I hope you understood that long explanation I just gave you. It's precious. How stupid they are. The reason the controversy exists because they adore the Greek manuscripts where it is often missing, and I just told you why, and ignore all the other evidence for it. And Dean Burgeon had the great explanation as to why it's missing in some cases. Oldest does not mean best in light of the Bible. Right. Let's remind ourselves of that. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. You can put your, a marker at John chapter 8. We may get back to it sometime this month. John... We haven't done this in a long time. We need to be reminded why we trust the King James Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, oldest doesn't mean best. 
if it's still around, if it's still around, it must mean nobody trusted it and used it. That's why it was in the Pope's library. Nobody had used it. If it was used, it would be used up. It would have been torn. It would have been recopied and burned because they didn't want it falling apart so that people only had portions of Scripture. There's whole reasons why oldest is not best, but to an MTV mind, oldest is best, and all they've got is two. To one, that Tischendorf, i got to go by the man that found it, Tischendorf said it was in a wastebasket in the convent at Mount Sinai. The other one's in the Pope's library, which is even a least respectful place to a wastebasket. And a least useful place. At least in a monastery wastebasket, maybe some monks had taken a peek at it. There aren't such things in the Pope's library when reading the Bible to come up with anything contrary to the church fathers or the Pope's ex-cathedra statements was allowed. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, look at this, verse 17. For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God. When's Paul writing this? 55 A.D. In 55 A.D., there were many that were already corrupting the word of God. For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God speak we in Christ. Here's a warning from the Bible in about 55 A.D., that the Apostle Paul said there was already many that were corrupting the Word of God. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is not an exhaustive study of Bible transmission or the King James Bible's providential care by God, but there will be some thoughts toward that. I just want to summarize the conflict about John chapter 8 and why we're going to go ahead and read and study it and trust it's every word anyway. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Thessalonians, don't get all worked up that Jesus is just about to appear because he can't appear until the two other historical events have to take place that are enumerated in verse 3. But I want verse 2 because it tells us that Paul warned Thessalonica that there was a spirit contrary to his doctrine. There was preached word contrary to his doctrine. There was a letter as from us, at least one, contrary to his doctrine. What is a letter as from us? A counterfeit epistle. A false epistle with Paul's name signed to it. As from us, apostles. In, in 60 AD. So oldest doesn't mean best. John 8, 1 through 11. What do Greek versions do? The textus receptus. The received text. It has it. No notes, no footnotes, no brackets, no nothing. 1550 by, by Stevens is, a, is what is commonly considered the textus receptus, which is the received text of the Greek used by our King James translators. Now... I want to share a few names with you of what is called the majority text. The majority text can be called the majority text with a little m, meaning that it's just an adjective, meaning the majority of the Greek manuscripts extant existing in the world today say this. And it's been put together. This is what the majority of the Greek manuscripts say. But I want to share with you the other official names don't trust me? Then go home and type into a Google search box majority text and read King James Loving Wikipedia? I don't think so. <laughs> Here's what they write. These are the names. And this, if you do any research about Bible manuscripts, this is the majority little m, but these are their capitalized official titles for that text. The traditional text. The tradition of the churches of Jesus Christ through time. The majority text, capital M. The Byzantine text. Ah, 
the Byzantine Empire, Constantinople, a long ways away from Rome and Alexandria. Because the other text, Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, is called the Alexandrian text. Alexandria, Egypt. Anything good ever come out of Egypt? You can't identify it. Traditional, majority, Byzantine, ecclesiastical, the text of the churches, Constantinople text, far away from Alexandria, Antiochian text. Oh, Antiochian text. Antiochian for what? Antioch. Antioch of where? Antioch of Syria, because it's also called, capital S, the Syrian text. Antioch of Syria? Wait a minute. Isn't that in the Bible? Whose home church was in Antioch of Syria? Paul. Where did he report back after every one of his preaching trips? Antioch of Syria. So it's called the Antiochian text, the Syrian text, the traditional text, the majority text, the Byzantine text, the ecclesiastical text. How many of that... How many of all the manuscripts in the world have John 8, 1 through 11? 85% of them. But they don't care about the 85%. They don't care about the Byzantine because the devil has led them to Origen and Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. So all they care about is the two most esteemed manuscripts don't have it. The two most ancient manuscripts don't have it. And they refer to these two as two idols that they worship. But there's a, whole, there's a whole field of study in all the problems with those two manuscripts, which I'm not going to bother you with. You can go bother yourself with it because it's all available to any one of you, or even on your smartphones at break time. The adored Greek Alexandrian manuscripts, Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, do not have John 8, 1 through 11. Westcott and Hort snuck it into their New Testament in Greek in 1881 for the Revised Version, this little jewel of 1881, came from Westcott and Hort of the Church of England and didn't have, had John 8, 1 through 11 marked. Let's just, let's just look it up here. John 8, it's going to be in brackets, meaning this is of doubtful authenticity without an explanation in this particular edition of the Revised Version. Yep, there's the bracket before John 7, 53, and there's the bracket after 8, 11, it's bracketed material, which I guess, I guess I can't trust that material, so let's just pass on over it. 1881, they had a copyright on that thing of 20 years, so America couldn't duplicate it until 1901, which they did in 1901. They weren't going to waste one minute when you can sell more Bibles. This is the American Standard Version. I want you to think about the word standard. What is a standard? Something that doesn't change that you can rely on. And so this is the American Standard Version, but you know what's happened since 1901, don't you? Oh, we have lots of changes. See, see I'm gonna, I was going ha- to pass these Bibles out. I have another 75 at home. Let's see here. Most of the ancient authorities omit John 7:53 through 8:11. Those which contain it very much from each other. Well, bless their hearts. Most of the ancient authorities. What's an authority to them? Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. So we get that in 1901 with the American Standard Version. Westcott, we're talking about the Greek versions, though, before we look at our English. Vaticanus and Sinaiticus don't have it. Westcott and Hort, with their new Greek New Testament in 1881, put the passage in double brackets and very strongly criticized it as being authentic. Nestle and Allen, 23rd edition. These are the popular Greek New Testaments used at seminaries for the last 50 years. The Nestle Allen of 1957 omitted the passage totally without brackets or double brackets. Just omitted it totally. The Bible Society's third edition of 1976, these are Greek versions of the New Testament, put the passage in double brackets, very strongly criticizing it. You can look this up online. Just just look up Greek New Testaments, and you can look it up, and there will be an honest fairly faithful document there about Greek New Testaments. Greek New Testaments multiply just like English translations multiply. And so when you say, I'm going to go back to the Greek so I can get the original reading, 
The, the first question you ought to ask someone that says that is, which version of the Greek are you calling the original? Do you know that I just read to you that Nestle and Allen, it was their 23rd edition? I'm just referring to that as the one that came out in 57. They've continued to produce them. Which one? Okay, what do other English translations say? Okay, 1881 was, was England. The big change took place in England in 1881 with Westcott and Hort. Then we, in 1901, got our hands on that copyright. Then in 1952, we come out with the Revised Standard Version. You can't revise standards, especially when it's something like the Word of God, but out comes the Revised Standard. The American Standard, 1901. Revised Standard, 1952. Let's see what it has to say at John chapter 8. I should have put 3 by 5 cards or something in here. You're just going to have to think about what we're doing. We're actually opening these ridiculous little things and trying to read their footnotes. The most ancient authorities omit 753 to 811. Other authorities add the passage here. Pay attention. This is. Other authorities add the passage here. They add it. Or after John 736. Okay, smart ones, and I mean, I mean this respectfully. Why would they add it after John 736? Because they want it out of the way of their Pentecostal reading from the lectionary. They're, they're admitting too much in their little footnote, but they can't figure out what they just admitted. Other authorities, meaning other manuscripts, add the passage here, or after John 7.36, or after John 21.25, or after Luke 21.38, with variations of text. Bless their hearts. What they're telling you is, those verses were pulled out and stuck at other places around the Gospel of John so that men in the pulpit would not read them on the day of Pentecost. Right. Because of the lectionary worship. We, what's our lectionary? The Holy Spirit in my office. And you bugging me with questions. It all works together. Or me reading the newspaper, which I don't read anymore. It's, it's the Lord leading us. That's our lectionary. We were going through John chapter 7, then we had to take a leave of absence and go after the character of David. Then we took another leave of absence and went after charity and, and love. Love is the greatest, and we're back here at John chapter 8. The Lord leads us. We don't follow some book that others have followed. The New American Standard. I'm not going to read all these to you, though I'm tempted. The New Amer Oh, I think I should. I'm sorry. Because I want you to understand, they change these Bibles constantly. When we write a document, who killed Goliath in your Bible, eventually they're going to get around to wanting to alter 2 Samuel 21, 19 because we've exposed them. We, meaning other King James Bible believers like us. So let's try this thing. This is the New American Standard Bible. This was the Bible of Bob Jones University until they switched about five to ten years ago to the English Standard Version. When, most, when those of us that went there went there, in the Bible classes, the New American Standard Bible was presented as the most accurate translation. Right. So let's find out its footnote. John 7, 53 through 8, 11 is not found in most of the old manuscripts. Okay, that's one New American Standard Bible. Let's try another New American Standard Bible and see what it says. Later manuscripts add the story of the adulterous woman numbering it as John 7:53 through 8:11. Sweet. Now, what do you think about the Jehovah's Witnesses and their New World Translation of 1961? Do you think it has John 8:1 through 11? No, because they worship at the same double altar of Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. What about the Good News Bible? No. What about the Jerusalem Bible of the Catholic Church? I want to read this. The Catholics should believe in it, though, because they rely on the Latin. The Latin's always had John 8, 1 through 11. But watch what happens to Catholics when they watch MTV. The author of this passage is not John. The oldest manuscripts do not include it or place it elsewhere. The style is that of the synoptics. I'm not going to bother you with that, except those of you that know it. The author of this passage is not John. The oldest manuscripts do not include it or place it elsewhere. Notice what they're trying, they're trying to undo what the other versions that don't have it have said. What do they mean by the oldest manuscripts? 
They mean those big volumes, one in the Pope's library and one at the Monastery of St. Catherine at Mount Sinai. What about the Living Bible? Nope. What about the NIV? It, nope. Cast brackets it, says it doesn't belong there. How about the New Revised Standard Version? Now, I'm getting confused. American Standard Version, 1901. Revised Standard Version, 1952. New American Standard Version, 1960. Revised, the new revised standard version. Oh, I forgot the revised. The new revised. Now we have the English standard version. Standard. Why do they use that word standard? They don't have a standard. They're changing it every year. But they want you to think they've got something solid for you to plant your feet on and for you to believe, but they don't. The English standard version. This is what Bob Jones uses at the present time. Let's go to John chapter 8 and see what it says here in its footnote. Some manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. 85% <laughs> do. Others add the passage here or after 736 or after 2125 or after Luke 2138 with variations in the text. The Holman Christian Standard Bible of the Southern Baptist Convention. Same treatment. Now, I did not bring cotton patch version. I did not bring the Word Made Fresh. I did not bring the Reader's Digest Condensed Bible. I brought Hermie and Friends. I've got a hundred, and I only have a small part of the collection of what's happened in the 20th and 21st centuries. Hermie and Friends Bible. Let's see what it says about John 8. It's not that dramatic. This is dramatic. Some early Greek manuscripts do not contain 753 through 811. Well, sweet, but 85% of them do. I've got Schofield Bibles up here calling the passage into question and so forth. That's what's happened in English. What do we do with the controversy? We believe that God has inspired his words and preserved them in the King James Version, which we prove to our total satisfaction with four internal spiritual arguments presented from the Bible itself. And this confidence we have in the King James Bible is sufficient to make the entire controversy a moot point. Because we simply believe the King James Bible. We have assumed that the words of the King James Bible are the words that God has providentially brought to us from the inspired pens of the 40 writers that made up the writers of the New Testament and, and the Old Testament. Those four points are faith, fruit, facts, and fools. Faith in God's promises to preserve his words. Fruit that, are, that are, is described in the Bible as following the words of God. Facts, the internal integrity of the King James Bible against these unlearned, learned men. Do you remember some of the little verses, that, the verses that we like to go to? They have Elhanan killing Goliath in the Old Testament. And they all, they've all signed off on that. That Elhanan killed Goliath, not David. Because of a corruption of 2 Samuel 21.19. Mark 1.2. They, they quote Mark 1.2 and say, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. But it's not written in Isaiah the prophet. It's Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. The King James Bible says, as it is written in the prophets, because there are two quotations there, one from Malachi in verse 2 and one from Isaiah in verse 3. So the King James says, as it is written in the prophets, but they have, as it is written in Isaiah, and they, with, the, with all their doctorate letters behind their names, have signed off on this pile of junk that says Mark 1-2 is a quotation from Isaiah when it is from Malachi 3-1, and their footnotes say it is from Malachi 3-1, but they have corrupted the text. These are simple little examples that the Lord has given us that these Bibles do not have internal integrity. But the Bible says about itself that it has internal integrity. Jesus said in John chapter 10, your Bibles say that the Son of God is an appropriate title for me because the Word of God came to the gods. And he quoted from the Old Testament Psalm. And John 10, 35 said... And, I, and I, you, can, you may want to look at it with me. The scriptures cannot be broken. It's only two chapters away from John chapter 8, and we'll get there soon. John 10, 35, If he called them gods, unto whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken. The scripture can't be broken at the word level. 
that the word gods in the Old Testament is the word that belongs there. It is the word that we should argue from. And if you are going to accept that word back there, then you should accept the fact that I'm the son of God, is his argument there. But the main point is, Scripture cannot be broken. So that's what we mean by facts. Faith in God's promises to preserve his word, which are in the Bible, the fruit that follows God's word, the internal facts of its integrity, and then the fools that do this kind of stuff, that think that textual criticism is a valid field of study, the way that they approach it. God has said in 1 Corinthians 1, Job chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that God has promised to make foolish the wisdom of this world. He asks these rhetorical questions. Where is the scribe? What's a scribe? Someone that translates the Bible or copies it. Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? That's 1 Corinthians chapter 1. That's the Apostle Paul writing from God, mocking the field of textual criticism that want to sit in judgment on his word. Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Amen. So that's our fourth F. You heard me with a little touch of emotion refer to some pamphlets that I read by some laymen written in Michigan in the late 70s and early 80s that I thank God for. One of them was called Perfected or Perverted. And it was beautiful because it went after the fruit of God's word rather than the manuscript evidence. Trying to prove the King James Bible by manuscript evidence is like trying to prove creation by the Grand Canyon. Now there's plenty of evidence there in the Grand Canyon, but do you want to go down the path of trying to prove that to an atheist? I don't. I don't have any time for any atheist ever. They have chosen to reason from a vacuum. They have chosen to reason from a null set in their heads for every thought that comes out of them. They have no source for their logical reasoning that they project. It's just hallucination. I have chosen that I'm going to start with a Bible. And so I don't have to prove it to anybody from manuscript evidence. Other men have done it for us. We're thankful for Dean Burgeon. We're thankful for a man that went to Harvard named Edward F. Hills, who's defended the King James Bible. These men have departed. We're thankful for Donald Waite uh, and the Dean Burgeon Society that we probably ought to be a member of as a church. And we have a black book in the library that you're welcome to take and give to anyone that needs it that puts together the manuscript evidence for the King James Bible. And it's good reading. And it's encouraging reading, and it's put together by Floyd Nolan Jones. But we don't use that ourselves. We have chosen that we are not going to go down the path of scientific exploration for proving creation. We're going to go down the path of Genesis 1-1 and Hebrews 11-3. Through faith, we understand the worlds were framed by the Word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Through faith, we understand. All Proper logical reasoning must start with some intelligent source. And that intelligent source is not a defecating bag of water. It's got to start somewhere else, and it starts with the Word of God. So we can, we can read through faith. We understand that the world's refrain with the Word of God. The Bible will go to say in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 that a man without faith is unreasonable. Because he's reasoning from what? They don't reason from science. They can't prove evolution. It's all a theory to get rid of God. They have no evidence of a Big Bang. They have no evidence of the density of matter back then and how it expanded at a rapid pace and evolved with reproducing butterflies in the first generation. So what do we do with the controversy? We start right here. Right here. That is why I wrote you yesterday and why we've said before, we have bet our lives in this world and our eternal destinies in the next world on this book. So our religion starts with a book because we know there's a God without the book, but we do not know about his son and redemption and how he wants us to live without the book. 
But this God gave us a supernatural book, and the supernatural nature of the Bible can be proven from a hundred different ways and has been before. But we believe it by faith. Because God's revealed himself to us in creation, we read the Bible, we look at, we look at the definition of love, and we know right there, there is a superiority about God's definition of love that the world has never come close to. They can't make anything work in the way of morality or relationships. They can't figure out that anatomically, men and women were made to get together. They think that men were made to get together with men anatomically. And on and on it goes. John chapter 8 is where we've been. We believe based on those four F's of God's providence in the King James Bible. We reject any men in their efforts to cast doubts or questions about Scripture because that's the devil's method. Yea, hath God said? Eve. Did God really say? Yes, God really said. And don't even raise a question about it. God really said, thou shalt not eat of that tree. We reject, we reason. We reason that God providentially concern, confirmed the 66-book canon so he confirmed its text. Why do we only have 66 books in a King James Bible and the Catholics have 73 books in their Bible? Why? Because God providentially arranged for the canon of Scripture by the churches of Jesus Christ that were suffering as martyrs at the hands of Rome to have 66 books. There is no, there is no scientific, there is no historical, there is no logical explanation for our 66 books. They just came together. There isn't a way to go to this council. The councils, if you go look in Wikipedia, what councils gave us the word of God? They're going to be Roman Catholic councils of the 5th century. Right. Do you know what Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 3? That he already had Paul's epistles. As our beloved brother Paul in all his epistles. Peter, are you sure? The council at Chalcedon hasn't been held yet. You're 400 years early. Peter, get your dates right. The word of God was already coming together. Right. Well, how are we supposed to know it? Faith, fruits, facts of internal integrity, and fools that fight against it. Right. What's the no-brainer conclusion by thinking about those four things? King James Bible. And how long has it been here? 406 years. How long between the American Standard and the New American Standard? 51 years. How long between the Revised Standard and the New American Standard? Eight years. How long between the New American Standard in 60 and the New Revised Standard in 89? 29. Oh. And they call them standards, and we have the King James Bible. And you can go pick one off the shelf back here that's a facsimile of the original production of 1611 because that's what you have in your hands. Just with a different typeset so that you can read it. We ignore the pericope controversy, or we laugh about it depending on our knowledge of it. We trust John 7.53 to 8.11 as much as we trust Genesis 1.1 or John 1.1 or any other verse. We see how scholars, textual critics, and translators hate truth and are ignorant of the Bible by what they do in 1 Samuel 13.1. They have an ellipsis. That shows intelligence, an ellipsis in the Bible. We've been there before. It's called Bible Babel on our website. 2 Samuel 21.19 has a different man killing Goliath, the Elhanan of Bethlehem rather than David. 2 Chronicles 22.2 alters the age of Ahaziah when he became king. 2 Chronicles 22.2 in the Hebrew says 42 years. In the King James Bible, it says 42 years. Because they can't reconcile that with 1 Kings 8.11, they change it to 22 years. Even though they say they swear by the originals. But they change it because they can't figure it out. We leave one 22 years old, the other one 42 years old, to discover that God is dating this king from a different origin than his birth by his mother, 
but a wicked king. And we learn, now we know why three kings are missing in the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1. There is hidden revelation for those that are willing to trust God's word. And there are, there's a trail of men like us through history that have understood that dilemma of the Bible. It's not a dilemma. It's a secret key for advanced revelation that you don't get by going to seminary and worshiping the dusty old volume of Vaticanus and the wastebasket material of Sinaiticus. Thank you, Lord. We go to Mark 1, 2, and we know that it's Isaiah and Malachi, both quoted there. It's not a prof- It's not from Isaiah in Mark 1, 2. We go to Galatians 3, 16, and it says, now to Abraham and his Seed where the promise is made. And we go to the Old Testament of the King James Bible, and it says seed every time. We go to the Old Testament of these Bibles, it says progeny, it says offspring, it says children, plural, instead of singular seed, because the singular seed of Abraham are those promises to us, because we are the singular seed of Abraham by believing on Jesus Christ, who was the singular seed of Abraham, because we're in Christ. That's what Galatians 3 is all about. They can't figure out doctrine. 1 Peter 3.21, the three corruptions about the doctrine of baptism in that one verse. They take away the fact that baptism has to be a figure of resurrection. They take away the fact that baptism doesn't wash away sin. They take away the fact that baptism is the answer of a good conscience because you have a good conscience before you get baptized, which condemns all their doctrines of baptism. That's why they don't like 1 Peter 3.21. So we go to those verses and we say, we've got plenty of ground to stand on. We have a, we have a solid foundation. And look at their shaky foundations that they call standards. We hold absolute trust in word-level preservation like Jesus and Paul and how they use the Bible. We trust believing scholars. Defending the King James Bible was one of Edward Hill's books. Another one of his books was Believing Bible Study. Believing Bible Study means that when we read the Bible and we study the Bible, we give God the benefit of the doubt, not our intelligence or lack thereof. We do not see what appears to be a contradiction and blame God We see what appears to be a contradiction and realize we haven't studied this enough to find out the reconciliation that may contain advanced revelation. That's believing Bible study. And so we trust believing scholars over faithless skeptics. We trust the Dean Burgeons and the Edward Hills and the Donald Waits and the Floyd Nolan Joneses. Thank you, Lord, for sending them for us. Is there any external evidence for the passage? Yes. The Textus Receptus Stevens of 1550 has it complete, without question. The majority text has it. In the hundreds, it was in the Harmonies of Tatian, about 160 A.D., and Ammonius, about 230 A.D., an instruction manual for bishops in the 200s referred to the Lord's example of clemency and how pastors ought to have such compassion themselves. In the 300s, Jerome translated the Latin Vulgate that had every word of John 8, 1 through 11 in his words from many Greek and ancient Latin manuscripts. In the 400s, Augustine used the passage extensively and referred to others using it as well. The pericope was well known, confirmed as scripture and read on St. Pelagia's Day, October 8th in the lectionary of the ancient Greek church, the guardians of Corne Greek. Some early manuscripts, including L, A is the oldest, B is the next oldest, including L, have a distinct blank space where it belongs because it was pulled to avoid lectionary reading on the day of Pentecost. 1998, a recent comparison of all Greek manuscripts show it to be in 81%. Wikipedia says that the pericope is in 85% of all Greek manuscripts. Is there any internal evidence for the passage? Do you want a Bible that reads from John 7.52 to 8.12? Look at it if you're at John 8. This is what's called internal evidence. John 8.52, they answered and said unto him, where are they? They're in a private conference without the Lord Jesus Christ. They're arguing among themselves why the officers didn't bring him back handcuffed and what are they going to do about him? Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. That's the end of John 7 to them. Then the first verse of John 8. Then spake Jesus again to them. Again to whom? Are you unbelievable? The internal. Then spake Jesus again. They're in a private conference. Jesus isn't there. The last time Jesus spoke is over in John 7, 38. And that was to a crowd of people, not to them. 
The them is a plural pronoun referring back to John 7, 52, those that were in a private conference trying to destroy the Lord Jesus Christ. Why would a corrupter, they want to say that it was added several centuries after the apostles. John 8, 1 through 11 was added. Why would a corrupter insert a spurious passage in the middle of the Pentecostal section of the lectionaries? Wouldn't that call attention to it? If the, for, I hope you understand that. Nobody added anything. Right. They, took it, they took it out because they didn't understand the marks around it that it wasn't supposed to be read at Pentecost. Is there external explanation for its removal? I've just explained all that. But here's the other reason. I told you that early scribes did not like it because it gave too much freedom to their wives. They were adulterers. They did not think their wives should be allowed any looseness which they, in their misinterpretation of John 8 toward their wives. So here's what Augustine wrote in the 4th century. Certain persons of little faith, or rather enemies of the true faith, fearing, I suppose, lest their wives should be given impunity in sinning, removed from their manuscripts the Lord's act of forgiveness toward the adulteress, as if he who had said sin no more had granted permission to sin. <laughs> Is there a related controversy? Yeah, the last 12 verses of Mark. You were supposed to read them last night and think about how that chapter ended, if it ended at Mark 16, 8. Do you want to hear Mark 16, 8? This is how Mark ends in their Bibles. There's a brother here, Eric DeVrent, has in his possession copies off the internet showing that Vaticanus has a big gap there where this passage was taken out. doesn't have gaps elsewhere like it does after Mark where this was removed or a scribe left a blank large enough, left a blank space large enough for its inclusion if somebody wanted to get the scripture back in there. Mark 16, 8. And they went out quickly, this is the women at the tomb of Jesus, and fled from the sepulcher, for they trembled and were amazed. Neither said they anything to any man, for they were afraid. So you have Mark's, you have Mark's gospel ending with the words, for they were afraid, instead of that beautiful summary that we have there, for they were afraid. Mark, come on, tell us a little bit more before you close out your writing. Of the 3,119 Greek manuscripts in existence today, none of which is complete, over 1,800 have this section of Mark, with only three lacking it. That's 600 to 1. What's the percentage? Vaticanus and Sinaiticus don't have it. So see, they'll go with two against 1,797. Further external evidence of all kinds is overwhelming with great weight for the verses. And there's, there's men like Dean Burgeon that wrote fantastic works just about that section of Scripture. And of course, there's a whole lot more that you can study to know. So what do we do when we come to John chapter 8? Well, if we're ignorant of everything, accept the Word of God, which is okay. Which is okay, we don't even know that there's a controversy. So we just read it, we quote it, we memorize it, we love the words, Go and sin no more. We love the words. He that is without sin, let him first cast a stone at her. We love those things. But I wanted to remind you that we have a solid foundation for why we trust the King James Bible, the proliferation of these Bibles written by ignorant men, written by malicious men that want to attack the Word of God, corrupt the Word of God. The Lord has exposed them to us as He promised He would. Remember, faith, fruit, facts, fools. He promised... He would expose them to us. So what every five-year-old boy that's been to Sunday school knows that David killed Goliath, they deny that in 2 Samuel 21, 19. Anyone with a search device on your phone can look up Mark 1, 2 and find out that it's Malachi 3, 1, but they say Isaiah because they're telling you we don't belong in the business of working with God's Word. Don't right. trust our work. Amen. And we don't. Amen. We trust this work. And so we read, we memorize, we study, and we are going to reason in John chapter 8, 1 through 11, from every word that is there, and we're going to trust every word that is there. When I say that, does that include the last six words of verse 6? John 8, 6. Are we going to trust those words? Do they look different in your Bible? Are they in italics? 
Are they lazy and have leaned over to the side? They're in italics. That's because the King James translators were honest. When they interpolated words, they put them in italics. When these other translations interpolate words or stick words in or paraphrase words, they don't put them in italics. They make it the text. Remember dynamic equivalence? How much of the NIV would need to be in italics? The whole thing. What about the Living Bible? How much would you put in italics? The whole thing. These are in italics. Do you know what that means? The received text, the text that we were relying on, didn't have these words, but we interpolated them from the Greek context and from other manuscripts. And are there other manuscripts that have these words? Yes. You say, prove to me that you can trust the italicized words. I was hoping you'd ask me that before we go to lunch. <laughs> can we prove the italicized words of the Bible? Second Samuel 21, 19 says, Elhanan killed the brother of. The words the brother of are in italics. Right. He killed the brother of Goliath. First Chronicles 20 and verse 5 tells us that brother's name and describes the very same event. His name was Lamai, the brother of Goliath. Second Samuel 21, 19 justifies the words the brother of. How about Jesus arguing in Matthew chapter 22 when he condemned the Sadducees and their long drawn out story about a woman with seven husbands. Who was she going to be married to in heaven because they didn't believe in heaven. They didn't believe in the human spirit. They didn't believe in the resurrection. Jesus condemned them by quoting Exodus 3, 6, where God said to Moses, 400 years after Abraham died, God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus appealed to that statement of God saying, I am the God of Abraham 400 years after Abraham died as proving that man has a spirit that exists after his body is dead. Right. Jesus argued from a single verb to be, I am. And when we go back to Exodus 3, 6 and look up, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, guess what is in italics? Amen. Am. Thank Oh, Lord, I love you. Amen. And I love your word. And it is internally perfect. Amen. Jesus argued from an italicized word, an argument that condemned the Sadducees. Thank you, Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name, we submit this first message to you from John chapter 8. And we thank you for the word of God. Amen. Stand with me, please.